Hi everyone, welcome back to Black Earth Podcast. Black Earth is an interview podcast celebrating nature and the inspiring Black women in the environmental movement. In this season, we're exploring our relationship with nature in terms of health. So how nature affects our health and how we affect nature's health. And in today's episode, I'm joined by Jennifer Uchendu from Lagos, Nigeria. And we'll be talking about climate emotions, um, in particular, eco-anxiety. And eco-anxiety can be a really tough um, topic to explore, um, but I really feel that it's such an important aspect of the way we respond to the environmental crisis and our journey to healing our relationship with nature. I'm so glad to be here that we're finally getting to do this. I know, I know. (laughs) Um, Could you briefly just introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, My name is Jennifer Uchindu. I'm currently living in Nigeria. I founded an organization called Susti Vibes. And, you know, Susti Vibes means sustainability vibes. So a lot of work around young people, sustainability, our understanding and, you know, how we work as young people, as actors and change makers. That really had been the concept of Susti Vibes. Um, personally, I'm also an eco-feminist. So a lot of my work has to do with gender, women and, you know, the environment. Um, I like to say that, you know, I recently started working around eco-anxiety, looking at climate emotions and what it means for us as Africans, as Black people. Um, I mean, there's so much to unpack there and I'm hoping we get to it here. How would you describe your relationship with nature? Mm, thank you so much, Marion. Such a good reflective, you know, question. Um, I've always seen nature as, you know, like a life support system where this is something that helps keeps me alive. And, you know, this is, I mean, nature is people, nature is plants, nature is food, nature is, you know, everything around us, basically. And looking at myself as a part of it, an integral part of it, where, you know, it's a win-win. If I succeed, nature is able to thrive. And if nature thrives, I definitely thrive as well. So it's looking at how can every day in the work that I do, in the ways that I live, my conversation, inspire people to think also like me in terms of um, protecting nature and, you know, even just thinking about it as an African and a young woman, you can't take away, you know, how much nature serves me every single day. Um, you know, in the food that I eat, in in health, you know, and in just being and living. So I think for me, it's just really looking at nature as a big part of my life and my life as a big part of nature. Thinking about it, Marion, I don't even know how we met, but I think it's also <laughs> part of those dots. <laughs> I know. It's like, yeah. I remember... I- I've tried to think, okay, how did I meet Jennifer? I don't know, yeah. but I just know that I know you. <laughs> and I know it's <laughs> I know that I know you. And I know it's to do with your work and in, you know, with Susta Vibes. 
I think when I met you, we can talk about it now, but when I met you, you had just finished your master's in, mm-hmm. uh, is it development studies at Sussex yeah, mm-hmm. University? You had just finished your master's and your research was on uh, eco-anxiety in mm-hmm. young yeah. mm-hmm. climate activists. Yeah. So could you talk more about that? When I finally, and I say finally because it took eight whole years, got the opportunity to get my master's, um, you know, I was very grateful, you know, that I had that opportunity to come to the UK and, you know, study development studies, focus on climate change and women. It was such a good moment for me. Um, But I left, I think, at 2019, Susty Vibes was three um, we had done so much in the space, but um, a lot of young people, and myself included, were talking about you know feelings of overwhelm, feelings of powerlessness, and feelings of frustration that we couldn't you know. And I I tried to figure out what could this be? Is this activist burnout? Um, we have that burst of joy every time we come together and do something, but then we go back home and see, watch the news or see what's happening and it doesn't just seem to get better. How do our actions translate to big transformative change? And I held that thought. We actually had an event um, in Nigeria before I went to school where you know we're discussing all of these emotions, but we didn't know what it was. But I'm grateful we at least had that space because now as a researcher, we know that space to validate and talk about these emotions are crucial and essential for people to name the emotions, talk about how they're feeling. Can you explain like what you mean by eco-anxiety? Absolutely. And I mean, these days, I feel like the world doesn't do justice to the range of, you know, emotions because it just leaves you at eco-anxiety. But it's, um, I always define it as the different spectrum and range of emotions people get to feel as a result to you know, direct or indirect impacts of climate change and the knowledge of it. And not just climate change, it could be biodiversity loss. And while those seem like very technical terms for an everyday person, it could be food insecurity, it could be, you know, pollution, it could be, you know, all of the different ways climate change changes everything for us. And those anxieties, those fears, those frustrations, those anger, some people would say climate anxiety, eco-grief, you know, eco-emotions, they all kind of mean the same thing. And I have kind of expanded my own definition to include feelings like joy and hope, because I think there's, those are also very important emotions. I kind of oscillate between all of them at different points. There are times where I'm extremely hopeful about the work that is being done in the world. And um, there's there's amazing things happening where you're thankful for humanity and that people are doing this hard work of figuring out, you know, how best to make the planet better and to heal ourselves in the process. So, you know, while those things are happening, um, I think my idea of equal anxiety and equal emotions allows me whole space for both the positive and the negative emotions in it so that's you know how I define 
um, eco-anxiety. I wonder if that definition would change in a couple more years, but I'm yeah. holding on to that yeah, idea of it as you know, range of emotions that are fine and normalized. Yes, it can get you know really bad and extreme, and we see people do very, you know, you know, we see people do crazy things. We see people um, get negatively impacted by these emotions. Mm-hmm. So those are also separate things. But in its initial presentation, where there's worry, there's fear about climate change, about the future of the planet, I, you know, really feel is completely normal. I think, you know, that's how you know that you're alive and you're part of a large ecosystem and that's what's important, yeah. I had the opportunity to go for COP, and that was my first ever COP, and it was just, you know, it was just crazy. You know, I found myself literally going home, and I'm in tears because I'm like, which Which why? COP was this? This was COP25. That was, that was in Madrid, in Spain. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was supposed to be in Chile, then it was moved to Madrid. Yeah, and at COP, COP was so, you know, it was so weird for me because I'm like, this can't be, you know, the all-in-all conference I've always wanted to attend because I just didn't feel, I felt very deflated and demotivated. Um, concepts around youth inclusion and youth participation were very tokenist and there wasn't just that sense of urgency. So I left COP feeling super, super, super eco-anxious as it were, feeling very overwhelmed. And I guess going back to school, I had to make the decision, do I face this, you know, feelings head on, research it, or do I just let it lead me to numbness and complete inaction? Because at the point I was thinking, maybe I'll find something else to do, you know, figure out my other talents in life and, you know, just have a happy, nice life. And um, I decided to do that hard work of, you know, figuring out what I was feeling. So I started to, you know, look into eco-anxiety and emotions. And um, the more I searched, the more I found things that were very Western. You know, it almost felt like um, to be an African, there's so many other things for you to be anxious about. And um, that was very interesting for me. My thesis was focused on young people in the UK, but it also gave me space to reflect on how I was feeling, you know, and kind of compare and put myself, you know, center myself and how that's different from um, young people in the West. So, um, Jennifer, one of the things that I wanted to uh, explore with you, uh, and I think it's partly linked to what you're talking about in your research, is how um, even though eco-anxiety can be something that is common for people, it's the reason why we experience eco-anxiety is motivated by different things. So, for example, um, you know, if you're in a community that's living with climate change right now and the immediate impacts of climate change, your experience of eco-anxiety looks different uh, in comparison to someone else who is experiencing eco-anxiety because they're worried about the future and the future impacts of climate, you know, climate action and 
sorry, climate change and the lack of uh, action that's being taken at the moment uh, in regards to making a difference. And it's also got to do with power and uh, how able someone feels to be able to make a change. Um, and all of that conversation about power and privilege also affects how someone feels eco-anxiety. So maybe they could be feeling anger or fear because they can't make the type of change that's needed or they can't influence the people in power to be more active. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I was saying, just listening to you talk, that's exactly like there's a whole paragraph and lines and lines on this um, from my initial research and my thesis in 2020. So I talk about how power and privilege are very linked with our understanding and experience of eco-anxiety. Um, you know, young people talk about even realizing their positionality, you know, being white, you know, coming from an affluent or rich and privileged background shields you from some of the realities of climate change. And it's what it is. And there's some, for some people, it presents as forms of guilt and even shame. And, you know, on the one, on the other hand, I'm thinking shame and guilt, you know, I don't even know what those means when, when we talk about, you know, the climate crisis. You know, I'm more of anger, I'm more of frustration. And that's also from thinking about my own power or where I stand in the power dynamics and map. And, you know, how the lack of it thereof can, you know, quell my own sense of anger and frustration. And it's interesting. It doesn't, you know, there are no kind of right or wrongs. It's just what it is, especially for young people. And in bridging the gap, I talk about themes like rethinking solidarity, where it's no longer an idea of um, this person from, the global north is coming to help. It's looking at us as we're all impacted by this issue, how be it in different ways. How can we work together? But if you don't see it that way, if you think you're helping me, then we're literally just wasting our time, you know, because we're never going to get, you know, to anywhere. We're never going to work together as equal partners. You're always going to think about, you know, giving me aid, supporting me, you know, giving me a, a lead on, which is not necessarily, I think, the a healthy way to look at the climate crisis. So at COP27, for example, there was a lot of conversation around the idea of loss and damage. The fact that even when we block the impact of climate crisis into two major blocks, as um, talking about adaptation, you know, helping people cope, and then talking about mitigation, reducing our em- emissions, there are still persons which even after all of those if efforts, they're still not going to be supported. They're still going to suffer a great deal of loss and damage from the climate crisis. So um, conversations about acknowledging that this is happening and also providing funding facilities to support, you know, those people, those populations. And a lot of them are in Nigeria, Pakistan, you know, Bangladesh, places where you have extreme climate vulnerabilities. Um, And in those conversations, there's also ideas about economic and non-economic losses. And with non-economic losses, we talk about loss of life, 
loss of culture, livelihood, and you know all of those things that money can necessarily buy. And I think that really falls under you know equal anxiety, especially for the global South and vulnerable communities. So it's so much to unpack with the um, emotional body that all of this come with, you know, and it can be very difficult to translate that for someone who's living in an area where this is not the reality, where there are massive safety nets and insurance and all of that to support when, you know, or if this crisis do come to them. So it's, it's a different, it's a different thing. So that, you know, going back to your question, you definitely surfaced. Um, my thesis was working with um, looking at youth climate activists in the UK and in particular the spaces where they participate. So I spoke to youth activists themselves. I spoke to their teachers. I spoke to parents. I spoke with um, community groups like the XRs, you know, where young people would often participate and trying to understand what they feel about equal anxiety and how it translates. And in all of those conversations, there were, you know, deep ideas around, you know, a lack of space oftentimes to reflect on these emotions. And then definitely central to that was power and privilege, you know, and young people in understanding the root causes of the climate crisis, its roots in oppression, in capitalism and in, you know, colonialism feel extremely guilty and ashamed of their own, you know, history, ancestral history, this in this reality. And you know, that can that in itself can be very heavy. You know, I might not be able to relate with it, but I empathize with feeling, you know, going around with that level of guilt and constantly thinking, what can I do? How can I help? How can I make a mark? So, you know, and I think for me, is also appreciating that spectrum of equal anxiety and then us saying, well, now that we're here, how do we move on from here? How do we walk together and how do we run shoulder to shoulder and not thinking that, you know, one person or one group of people are superior, you know, to the others. So that has been, you know, a very good way of thinking about equal anxiety as it relates to power and position, not just stay there to say, well, you know, some people are just lucky and more fortunate, but seeing the amounts of burden or emotional burden that we all carry. Okay, how many of the people you spoke to were were Black British? Uh, because there's a lot of, there's a nuance in climate, climate change and climate activism in the UK. Uh, I think a lot of Black British people feel very alienated and excluded from the environmental and climate change space in the UK, in part because there is still not an open and explicit awareness and discussion about the impacts of racism, uh, not just on climate change, but how that is something that genuinely prevents people from even having the sense of agency to make a difference on these issues. And that is also a source of eco-anxiety for many Black people, because it's Mm -hmm. like, how can, how, you know, the urge, the same urgency that's being applied to uh, climate change 
there's not that same urgency for police brutality, police brutality or economic poverty or uh, institutional racism in the healthcare system that yeah. prevents people, black people from being able to meaningfully live a life from which they can contribute to. And so there's, it's complicated because yes, you are living in the UK, which is a major driver of climate change around the world, you know, historically and currently yeah, with emissions. Mm-hmm. But it's also that as a black person existing in this space, there's that layer of racism, which a impacts your life on a daily basis. But it's also a source of frustration because, you know, the climate crisis that's impacting communities and your heritage, your places of heritage around the world is still not being openly discussed. And so there's, I don't know how to explain it, but I feel like no, there's so much yeah. nuance in our experiences. And that's why talking about things like power and privilege and influence matters, not because it's about focusing on the individual and your individual identities, but it's actually about understanding the whole spectrum of the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the system and, and why mm-hmm. it needs to change and how it's affecting different people in different communities even mm-hmm. if they live in the same space and they are, you know, interacting from a, a same geographical space, their experiences of climate change and climate injustice is very different. So, yeah, I was just inspired when you were speaking about that because of a lot of Black people that I speak to live in the UK. It's not shame or guilt that they feel when it comes to weak anxiety. It's more anger, a sense of erasure. Because yeah. the the climate change space in the UK, it, race is erased from the discussions. Thank you so much for bringing that up. And it did come up. It did come up several times in my research. And it still does. The idea of, you know, where's the place of race? And, um, you know, as you've mentioned, there's always that um, error of saying, um, your eco-anxiety is completely direct, is directly proportional to where you live. But it's not just that, as we've discussed, it's also power, positionality and privilege. And the, the idea for me has been with the young people who are thinking about this conversation in the right way, they're saying, you know, they were saying to me, we would not take away the climate crisis from or how they put it, climate justice and social justice are two sides of the same coin. You know, we won't take them apart. And for the longest time, history of the environmental movement has refused to look at the social justice side of things. It's been incredibly, you know, kind of white and just focused on, oh, let's save the environment. But who is the environment? You know, what is the environment if not people who continue to pour themselves are impacted by the environment. Who exactly are you saving? And you can't, if you if you want to look at climate action without looking at how did we get here, and it's the, in, in asking that question of how we get here, that's where you see the history of erasure, oppression, you know, extractivism, and very deliberate approach to, you know, to kind of exert power over a particular race. And, when you look at how um, inconsistent and unfair that reality is, it plays out to our experience of equal anxiety. How it's just it just doesn't feel right. You know, you can't tackle this problem without looking at 
the people who are impacted the most. You know, that's the idea of climate justice, looking at it from a lens of, you know, power. And it plays out and comes out a lot in, you know, equal anxiety, especially for Black people who live in the global north, who live in developed countries, because, um, you know, a lot of I remember speaking particularly to a youth climate activist that was, you know, black, British, and you know, she talked about just being tired and efforts to include and efforts to engage often feel very tokenist because it almost feels like, oh yeah, let's check a box, let's have diversity in the room, you know, let's every let's have everyone talk about the climate crisis and you know, let's give space for everyone. But are we really doing that, you know, if we um, continue to silence the voices that really matter the most, especially in terms of impact and, you know, thinking about the environment just as, um, you know, non-living or, you know, non-living objects that, oh, we just need to protect, you know, and make ourselves feel good, whereas people are really being impacted. Because for me, climate action is, you know, social justice is actually supporting people and ensuring that, you know, the next person doesn't die from an impact of air pollution or something that's related to the climate crisis. And we see it unfold every day. Um, it's a very difficult conversation to have, you know, especially with um, even researchers, climate scientists, and actual environmentalists who for many years have been doing a particular kind of work. And we talk about you know, it's impossible to not center this reality because it's what it is. And that's why there's so much suffering in the world, you know, related to this. And we need to talk about it and we need to find ways to safeguard these emotions, but also do better moving forward. Um, so definitely I agree with you. It's a big thing, something I'm hoping to even explore a whole lot more, because if we don't talk about this very difficult, uh, I mean, I almost kind of posit that because we've not explored and talked about these conversations as uncomfortable as they are, we have almost become complacent with the system that has just continued to grow and exploit and you know it's just business as usual because the cycle is repeated certain groups of people suffer um it's just you know it's okay we move you know as they say in nigeria but unfortunately every other year there's a climate conference to talk about the problems talk about the differences and it's just business as usual i recently read about the approval for you know the coal investments in the uk and you know i'm just like Absolutely crazy. Yeah, I'm like, are we like, I'm like, are we, are we even serious here? You know, like, are we, what, what, you know, someone called it, you know, this new wave of climate imperialism almost where you're literally saying, oh, African countries need to do this, need to do that. But at the same time, you're not making changes, you know. Is so kind of, it's difficult to find hope in conversations like that. But I think it's important to talk about them because it helps us think, okay, what's the way forward? How can we engage, you know, meaningfully and how can we think of ways to do better? So definitely, you know, in summary, it's like we can't take away climate justice from social justice. They're so interlinked. 
And the few, the young people who have figured this out are now, you know, trying to do things differently. Um, you know, that came up a lot in my conversations with XR, where they talk about, you know, lots of tension between the young and the older people because the younger climate activists just seem to see things differently and are pushing more for social justice issues to be centered within the conversation and, you know, to stop that idea of whitewashing climate change or climate action because it's really, um, it's communities, it's frontline communities that have really carried this burden in several parts of the world. They are the real climate heroes. They are the real, you know, activists who have for many years advocated for a right to breathe clean air and a right to live at the end of the day. What are some of the solutions that our listeners can look into um, if they're experiencing feelings of eco-anxiety? Well, yeah, that's a good question. I would almost kind of reframe. Mm. If we say solutions, then we're almost saying there's a problem, you know, in thinking mm. and feeling this way. One very effective way is space, creating space. And I mean, the, the the act of creating space has to be very intentional in the sense of whose voices are going to be heard in these spaces. So I would almost even advocate for spaces where um, people who think the same way, impact, are impacted the same way, come together to discuss because A, there's power in validating and naming the emotion to say, oh, right now I feel very angry and that is how I feel. There's definitely power in kind of letting that out and concepts around climate cafes, listening sessions and spaces have been um, highly recommended. Um, it's something we do at Susty Vibes. Um, something you know that we're exploring more and more. Of, uh, we're currently running a project now where we're bringing young people together in spaces, but also bringing them together with older people so to have like an intergenerational space and see what those conversations look like in terms of supporting and safeguarding um, equal anxiety. So, so much is happening with, you know, cafes. But again, it has to be very, it has to be done intentionally because there's a risk of, you know, perpetuating the same cycle in the process, especially if it's not done sensitively. Um, you know, we also talk about um, climate aware psychotherapy as ways that can be considered, especially when, you know, these feelings and emotions get very harmful. Um, it's not something that's very much elaborated in Africa for obvious reasons, because mental health in its in itself, it's a whole different ball game. And then when you put the two together, it's like, what are we even talking about? So very few people are now thinking of courses that are contextually relevant for Black people, um, psychotherapists. I'm very, very interested in that and looking for ways to um, support that growing field so that more people um, can get the right support. Community has also been very, very useful. We see that play out with Susty Vibes where, you know, people say, 
yes, you know, I feel equal sure sometimes, but I'm glad that I'm part of the community. I'm glad there are people I can talk about this with. I'm glad that there are people who are also doing something about it. So we're not just stopping and talking about it. We're also going to do something and, you know, putting a lot of our energies into action while, you know, space making and all of those other good stuff are important. We're really thinking more about the research side of things, figuring out, you know, for example, what's happening in Liberia when we talk about climate emotions, you know, when we think of the map of the world and emotions, what's playing out in different regions, what's the difference between the rural area and the urban area, how do they perceive you know, the crisis of climate change or however they understand it. And what does this mean for the future of adaptation almost? Because it's from how we think about it, there's a large chunk of, you know, the psychological uh, well-being and understanding of the climate crisis that feeds into climate adaptation. We talk so much about solutions, technical solutions to, you know, repair, restore, adapt, mitigate. But it's also like this is a very human experience and we are part of nature. So whatever is happening to nature, we surely must be feeling it mentally, you know, emotionally in terms of this breakdown. And I think eco-anxiety brings much needed human element into this conversation and especially from the perspectives of people who are being most impacted by by what's happening in the world, you know? Um, and I think it's opening up a space for more just culturally sensitive, but like yeah. just, yeah, just sensitive and empathetic perspectives mm. on like mm -hmm. what it means to, to lose your home, to lose yeah. the area that you live in, to lose your culture, your language as a result mm -hmm. of ecological loss. Mm -hmm. There's so many things that you can feel when you're feeling eco-anxiety and they they can exist at the same time. You know, you can feel anger and you can also feel uh, hope when you connect with people uh, who are doing something. Or you can feel determination when you do something with other people. And I think eco-anxiety can be a tool for collective action, collective liberation if we allow ourselves to experience all the different emotions that comes with us trying to process this, what is happening in the world, which is, is so layered, you know, there's so many levels of anxieties, as you mentioned. I think for me, what hope does in the climate discourse is that it gives us something to look forward to. You know, it's different from saying, oh, I have faith in humanity. It's like I literally have hope that things can change and hope that there would be a process, you know, through which this change can, and I can be a part of it because with hope, you're able to imagine and you're able to think through, you know, a better world. And having that as part of the spectrum of emotions is, is crucial because it helps us when we move from, you know, all of the different emotion, leveraging on our hope and what that vision of, you know, a better world is 
helps us to keep going because, you know, I mentioned this being a marathon, um, really. And for me, um, hope is essential because without hope, you know, it's going to be very easy to um, move to that spectrum of numbness and powerlessness and stay there. You know, hope is able to bolt us up and, you know, just get us to, you know, come together and think about, oh, what should we be doing? How can we um, do something about everything happening? And hope helps us, I think, to live with the um, with climate change because the change is happening. Things are changing and we see that happening in some places slowly, in some places rapidly. And we hope you're able to wake up every day and continue to push um, hope helps us to see the humanity in climate action, you know, to see that it's beyond saving polar bears. It's actually about people. It's actually about livelihoods. It's actually about the future of the world and what the world will look like in 15, 20 years. And it helps us think more on a systems change level. So it's not wishful thinking. It's more of thinking about something that's long term that has to do with renewal. I think that's the power of hope. And, you know, that's the power it brings into this discourse because it safeguards the emotions in ways that you always keep going back to, well, this is what I'm working towards. And I think it's really crucial. Yeah. Thank you for joining us in today's episode. We'd absolutely love to hear what you think. We're on Instagram, LinkedIn, and TikTok at Black Earth Podcast. So please connect with us on your socials and share your thoughts with us. Please don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And also, if this episode inspired you in any way, Share it with your friends, your families, your neighbours, your colleagues, your cousins. Um, because at Black Earth, we're about having conversations that heal. Um, so if something inspires you, it has the potential to heal you. Um, so yeah, please share and connect with us. See you in the next episode. <laughs>